0: Hello and welcome to the Political Notebook Podcast. I'm Billy Robb. I'm a high school teacher. And I'm Robert Robb, an editorial columnist for the Arizona Republic and Billy's dad.
1: And topic for today is something that's not been in the news a whole lot lately. Been a little overwhelmed by the news lately. (laughs) Um, So we're going to change the topic a little bit. But before we we, uh, go to our main topic, I just want to plug... a couple of my dad's articles that have been uh, in the in the Arizona Republic lately on school funding, which is a hot topic here at Arizona. Uh, he had one on Wednesday about a proposal for uh, increasing the revenue through a sales tax, and he's got another one coming out on Friday. Uh, what's that one about? Well, the the first
0: one I wanted to put forward what I thought was a simple – Uh, politically pragmatic way to restore K-12 funding to its pre-recession levels. Um, But there are two other constructs, as I'm calling them, uh, that are bolder and I think ultimately better, but they're politically dicey and would run into a lot of political opposition. Um, That's uh, true backpack funding uh, and abolishing most other sources of taxation and substituting a business gross receipts tax. So uh, Friday's column is sort of the pie in the sky Mm -hmm. uh, reforms. And Wednesday's column was sort of, if you want to get this done, uh, here's the best way to do it that has the maximum chances of success.
1: And by this, you meant restoring K-12 funding back to 2008 levels, Yes,
0: the the proposal that I made, a one-cent sales tax, and to increase the base level, which is the starting point for calculating state aid for both district schools and charter schools commensurately, um, would actually raise um, more uh, than um, would be necessary to strictly get back to pre-recession levels in itself it also increases what districts can raise from their overrides and would leave the state on the hook uh, for capital funding i I think you can realistically expect the growth in existing revenues to restore that funding i don't think that's realistic with respect to operational funding
1: so you can see the those articles on azcentral.com in the opinion section um one on Wednesday and one on Friday. It's also going to be in the Arizona Republic, published on Friday. Also, we're recording this on Thursday, (laughs) uh, Thursday evening, and uh, Doug Ducey, our governor in Arizona, made an announcement uh, about funding. Um, He announced basically meeting the 20% demands that the grassroots movement has been uh, demanding or asking for here in Arizona, What's your just initial quick reaction to, we haven't had a whole lot of time to analyze it or reflect on it, but what's your quick reaction to the announcement that was made today? I think politically, um, it probably
0: uh, will advert um, a confrontation. Uh, we'll see how the Red for Ed movement reacts to it, but in other parts of the educational community, there um, was um, a hearty welcome uh, to the proposal. There are one thing, one thing about it that I don't like and something else about it uh, about which I am extremely skeptical. I do not believe that teacher salaries um, should be set at the state level. Uh, and uh, this gets the state into the business big time uh, I mean, you're talking about up to a 20% increase dictated by the state legislature and funded with earmarked funds at the state level. I don't think that's where these decisions should be made. Um, I'm not sure that a 20% across the board uh, is um, what we need. Uh, you, you are going to increase the inequities between similar teachers in their salaries based upon what district that they work for. Some districts do a much better job of, of getting uh, better pay to teachers uh, than others. My skepticism is whether the state can afford it. Um, this is...
1: Without a tax increase or with without it, some revenue, additional revenue stream coming right,
0: in. Right, right. That's why I proposed the one-cent increase in the sales tax. But this is... Um, an additional $300 million. Uh, and Ducey says that he will also complete what he pledged uh, in terms of restoring additional district assistance. And there will uh, still be $270 million or so to be made up there after this year's. So you're talking about this year an additional $400 million and, and uh, well over $500 million going forward. It is true that state revenues have picked up, um, and until you see the budget in its entirety, you can't make firm conclusions. Uh, but I'm very skeptical that that level of a commitment uh, won't put the state at risk of going back into a deficit.
1: And what's the problem with that? Just increased borrowing, or how does that, how does that deficit well, get the, made up?
0: The ability of the state to borrow consci- for, for a conscience uh, deficit um, is restricted by the Constitution. There's ways that the um, legislature and others have figured out around that constitutional limit. But what it means is that the funding is not sustainable, uh, so if if we start down this path, and suddenly you got a two hundred million dollar hole in the budget, and you know it, uh, you got to do something to address it. Either increase revenues, which is off the table with this governor and this legislature, or you got to cut spending someplace.
1: Yeah. Well, to me, the the proof is in the pudding, and we'll see where, um, you know, the details and the revenue streams. Where those, where those come from. Uh, we'll save that for, for another podcast. Um, and I want to talk about healthcare today because um, it's something that's been in my mind a lot lately. It's not in the news, but it's been in my mind late, a lot lately because it's affecting my life and my, my budget. So uh, I'll go on a little rant here, and then uh, you'll, you can figure out the solutions. Um, so, I mean, in the past, I'm sure many... Listeners have had similar experiences, frustrating experiences uh, in the healthcare system, uh, just dealing with uh, bureaucracy and uncertainty about costs and things like that. And I, a couple of years ago, I tore my Achilles, uh, and that was uh, an experience navigating, even though I had uh, health insurance from my employer. You know, there was uh, my MRI wasn't covered right away because I needed. Uh, they need a, uh, a new new test before the MRI well, all the doctors said, no, you don 't need that test using the MRI, but the insurance company said I needed uh, a different test before the MRI and then stuff like you get a seven hundred dollar or seven hundred dollar like bill like a year later, and then no one can tell me why I owed that or even what it was for, but it's just like I have to pay it otherwise we 're going to collections i 'm like what so that's that that kind of stuff is frustrating, but just uh just this year, um, had a snafu with Obamacare that I'll explain a little bit. My wife, we got married in October, uh, she had been on Obamacare. She, uh, she was leaving a job that had health insurance uh, to take a, uh, cha- a change in career path and an entry-level uh, position that was paid hourly, so she got on Obamacare. And so she was getting the subsidy. She talked to them, like, what's, you know, here's my income level gonna be for this year. She took the subsidy for Obamacare. Well, we go, we get married in October, and um, we go to file our taxes this year, and it turns out that because we're married, even though our collective income is only $60,000 around there, um, but we got bumped over the income level for my wife to apply for the, for the Obamacare subsidy. And according to, I didn't know this, she didn't know this, but according to the law, you cannot file, you cannot file married separately. Um, you cannot file taxes separately under Obamacare. You automatically lose your subsidy, um, if you file separately. So it turns out that, uh, there's nothing we can do. And, and we're going to get hit with uh, several thousand dollars penalty. And I you know, looked up everything and they called it the marriage penalty for Obamacare. So I was a little steamed about that. And it got me just thinking about uh, healthcare and, and issues relating to that and, and started thinking about all the, all the debates about Obamacare back when it first started and then all the attempts to repeal it and how the Republicans couldn't repeal it. So I'll just turn this over to you, Dad. Um, (laughs) How do you fix health insurance in America?
0: Well, there's a a lot to unpack there, (laughs) um, but I will give you the way I think the system should work uh, and um, the mistakes that were made um, in Obamacare. I think that we... The, the first mistake is to have imp- employer-paid insurance.
1: Which has been happening. It, it, it was
0: It's an accident of World War II wage and price controls. Um, the employers wanted to give a boost uh, to their workers. They couldn't increase their wages directly. Uh, but whatever government board was in charge of wage and price controls there um, held that if the employer paid for health insurance, that didn't violate um, the wage control. So it actually occurred as an accident of history, and it makes zero sense. Your 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 health isn't shouldn't be the responsibility of your employer. No other personal insurance uh, do we rely on employers to provide, and it creates a stickiness in, in the labor market because people are. Particularly with pre-existing conditions, are afraid to change employers for fear that they're going to lose their health insurance. So the first, first there ought not to be employer-paid uh, health insurance. It should be a personal product that's portable with us. Um, second, we shouldn't insure for ordinary expenses. We don't do that. You know, you, you don't insure your car uh, to get a to pay for a tune-up. Uh, or a minor repair. Uh, You insure your car against major damage to your car or someone else's car. Uh, Comparably, we should be paying out of pocket uh, for ordinary health care expenses and have catastrophic plans. So if there's something that that really would put a dent in in our income, uh, then we've got insurance for that. That would reduce the number of the irritating bureaucratic rules that, that you run into. So then you run into what you do with people uh, who have health care expenses that they can't afford uh, or are, are have too little income uh, in order to purchase health insurance. Well, I think we've got a program to take care of that, the Medicaid program, and Uh, The way that I would ensure that nobody goes without health insurance is to say, or health care, would be to say if your expenses exceed a certain percentage of your income, uh, then uh, you can opt in to the Medicaid coverage, yeah, the Medicaid coverage, so in the problem with Obamacare, and know,
1: Medicaid is the is the insurance for low income, for, for low income, and Medicare is for the elderly is, I is for those over them. over
0: the age of 65, which your father is fast approaching <laughs> and will soon be eligible for. Um, so to, to, to me, th- there should be a government safety net so that nobody goes without health care. Nobody goes broke as a result of getting health care. But to me, Medicaid can be that safety net, uh, not just for the very low income, but for anyone uh, whose health care expenses exceed a certain percentage of uh, their income. Now, Obamacare tried to do all of that in one package. Um, So uh, rather than only provide subsidies um, for those who um, can't get coverage because of pre-existing conditions uh, or because of income. They made everybody buy the same policy and put everything in that policy. So a lot of people opted not to buy it and to pay the penalty because it wasn't a good value proposition.
1: And the reason that went in, I'm trying to think back to, like, what was the main problem? Because the Democrats have been trying to get more comprehensive health care passed for a long time. Hillary Clinton tried to get it through when she was a first lady. Um, Barack Obama campaigned on it. What did they see as, like, the major problem? Just people not being able to afford health care and being too many people uninsured, uh, which would but increase you, the cost if, if you had, So what was the main problem from their estimate before Obamacare came came in?
0: That was supposedly the main problem. Um, But you could deal with that with a special program uh, for those that are in those circumstances. Like a safety net thing. The safety net thing. But that's all paid by taxpayers, so it's very transparent. So by making everybody buy the same insurance and making every insurance policy that could be sold comprehensive and expensive, they hid the cost of the subsidies uh, through higher insurance premiums. Uh, So young, healthy people are paying more than than they would pay uh, if they were simply being priced according to their own risk, which is the way that all
1: other personal lines of insurance are priced. And that's because uh, you had to insure everyone regardless of pre-existing conditions. Is that why those things that's, went up? And you had That's to one have... of
0: the things. And, and Obamacare mandated uh, the kind of coverage that you could get. So, so the policy that I said people ought to have, um, a catastrophic policy for major medical uh-huh. expenses and pickup, that was actually outlawed by Obamacare for anyone over the age of 30. You had to be under 30 in order to be eligible for a catastrophic health care plan. So they wanted, uh, I think one of the purposes and certainly the effect was to hide the cost of the program in insurance premiums rather than being transparent and showing it on uh, the tax side. And the result of that was that it made the product a bad value proposition. And young people didn't buy it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so uh, the premiums had to keep going up. And the more it went up, the more price the, 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 the the more it became a bad value proposition.
1: Yeah. So with your parachute or the um, safety net plan, would that take care of pre-existing conditions? Like if someone, yes. you, you just automatically would fall into this, uh, this well, if, plan right
0: there? Yeah. If you had a, If you did not have health insurance and you had a pre-existing condition that was going to cost over a certain percentage of your income and uh, no health insurance company Mm -hmm. would take you or would issue a policy that would cover that condition, then you would be eligible for Medicaid.
1: So I want to get to the the next part, I want to get to the efficiency question, uh, and I know there's... Amazon and a couple of companies have got trying to get into the healthcare business to try to increase the efficiency to solve the problem of like that bureaucratic mess that I talked about earlier. But before we get there, I want to touch on um, just an argument that the left makes, especially the Bernie the Bernie folks make. Uh, this idea that um, you know they're pushing universal healthcare uh, and single payer healthcare, which means. Basically, there's the government is the main insurer, and everyone goes into that to that government, and that seems to be, uh, at least on the the far the far left, uh, the push right now. One of the arguments they make is like healthcare is a right, and everyone, no matter what, should have access to healthcare. Especially, we're very advanced people, technology, you know, 21st century. Everyone sh- should have. Healthcare, care. And they use examples, um, you know, European countries and Canada, you know, kind of is like, I don't pay anything. I just go there and, and get my, get my health insurance. What's wrong with that? Why not just do that? Britain and Canada are the two single payer
0: examples. Most of the rest of the Europe, uh, there is, um, private insurance, um, with a strong government role. There's a strong government role here in the United States. The, the federal government picks up about 50% of all health care costs already. Uh, it is a system which uh, does a good job of managing expenses for routine things. But if you are seriously ill, uh, the system in the United States has far better, um, recovery and survival rates, uh, for things like heart disease, uh, and cancer, uh, than these single payer systems. Also, um, they ration care, uh, if you are, uh, if you need a hip replacement, uh, it may be a couple years uh, before uh, you get that. Your uh, grandmother um, got one in three or four months. And in some cases, uh, they actually say if you're over a certain age, uh, there's just certain procedures you don't get. So uh, the I do believe that there should be a government safety net which ensures that No one goes without health care. No one goes broke as a result of getting health care. We can provide that without forcing everybody through the the same system uh, and uh, throwing away uh, the advantages of our current system. And to me, that's more in keeping uh, with the American spirit Uh, which is that you provide for yourself and you provide a helping hand to those
1: in need. So why is it that we've got those serious procedures? Why do we do that better? What is it about our system that makes like the cancer treatment and and those things the premier place to go?
0: I I think because there's an element of free market innovation uh, and... Um, private payment Um that that creates a greater consumer
1: response and that, that's that once you have that there it can be available even even for those that aren't super wealthy uh to get that top if, treatment if if they've got insurance mm-hmm. that
0: that covers it um i mean our we had a specific problem in our system uh, which was People with pre-existing conditions couldn't get insurance, and people who uh, got health care, people didn't go without health care, but oftentimes they would have severe financial difficulties uh, as a result, and some people would choose not to to get the health care. Those are discrete problems that we can create a safety net to make sure that people aren't subjected to that without throwing out the things about our system um, right. that are advantageous and better.
1: Yeah. And one, one thing I, I, in the in the arguments back and forth that are made, I hear Democrats saying that Republicans are just, you know, cruel and wanting people to, I mean, almost like they don't care about people dying and sick people and stuff like that. But I think it's important to, to maybe, to maybe back off that and say, well, Maybe they're just a different theory about the best way to get efficient, good health care for everyone. Well, the the proposal
0: that I mentioned, uh, the safety net, um, is not one that Republicans have embraced. And I think Republicans can be fairly criticized for not advancing proposals, uh, which uh, adequately create the safety net Mm. uh, for those that are chronically or seriously ill, their proposal is some kind of a um, pool that would subsidize the health care rather than ensuring entry into the Medicaid program um, where you've got the same kind of coverage. Medicaid coverage can be very, very good. Yeah. so i i actually think i mean i don't think it's because they're cruel and heartless but i do think they are fairly criticized uh, for not having an adequate safety net proposal uh while they're trying to dismantle uh something that i think should be dismantled the attempt by the by obamacare to solve all these problems through the premium mechanism yeah that's
1: a good point there's always gonna be people falling through the cracks uh and it's, it's important to have the safety net there. So let's go to the last uh, wrinkle in this, and that's just that, just that bureaucracy that, that I described of, you know, getting a bill show up a year and a half later and trying to call people on the phone and they don't know who you are and you could call another department and they don't know, you can't put two and two together. And so there, so how do you I- increase that efficiency and is like amp. I don't think Amazon has a plan yet, but they said that they want to get into maybe the the health insurance business to provide for their employees, or even starting a new new coverage. Do you see any innovation on on that side as potentially solving solving some of those messes and that people get into? Well, and
0: employers have for some time now uh, wanted to get better control of their health care expenses for their employees, which has become a um, very large um, part of their uh, benefit package and a cost of doing business. I don't think that's the answer, because I don't think we should be dependent upon employers for our health insurance. It would help, I think, improve the unresponsive bureaucracy, uh, if employers weren't involved because one of the questions always is, okay, what is the employer paying for and what's left over for the employee to pay uh, directly out of pocket? Right. And everybody's insurance policy is different. So it, it takes a while to weed through that and basically these providers have to submit the bill to the employer and then what the employer doesn't pay, they try to... Um, Uh, pick up from the employee, but there may be agreements that limit the degree that they can do that. So, Because of the role that the employer pays, this is a far more complicated system than it needs to be. Also, if we were paying out of pocket for routine stuff, then the volume of things that insurance had to deal with could be reduced enormously. Now, Taking all that into account, I think everybody has had experiences like you have, and clearly there's a lack of an insufficient consumer orientation uh, to um, health insurance and providers that, that charge directly. I think if we were all paying more of the bill... The insurance companies and the hospitals and the doctors would pay more attention to us, but when we're paying ten twenty percent right. of the cost, and the employer's paying eighty percent, well you make you pay attention to the employer rather
1: than the employee, yeah. Sometimes it feels like I'm paying out of pocket for everything anyways because the deductible is so high. But
0: <laughs> well and, 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 and that is a change that has happened. And, and and that also was part of what happened with Obamacare. So Obamacare said a lot of the stuff you gotta pay you, you gotta provide without charging anything for it. No co-pays. Mm-hmm. And everybody has to have it. Well, in order to make up that mandated cost. Uh, one of the things that employer plans have done is to substantially increase the deductibles and co-pays. Yeah. I think that would have happened anyway. And mm. I actually think that's a good thing because you're sort of de facto self-insuring uh, for the small stuff. Uh, so we're sort of backing into the system that I think we ought to be walking okay. into through the front door.
1: Yeah. And I, I mean, can't, I can't complain too much. I tore my Achilles, had it in surgery two days later, and eight months eight months later, I was playing basketball. So, it, I'm grateful for uh, the kind of care I have access to. But definitely, some efficiencies and some policy changes could could smooth things out a little bit. Um, last question: Who were you rooting for in the Masters this week? I. There's not a lot of golfers that I don't like. I really
0: think um, professional golf is is blessed. I, I do have a uh, particular affection for Jordan Spieth. Yeah, same here. I was
1: rooting for. So
0: when when, when he made that run, that was something. But I mean, you had uh, Patrick Reed, uh, his first major. You had Ricky Fowler, uh, searching for his uh, first major. I just think golf is blessed uh, with professional golf is blessed with the broadest group of excellent golfers yeah. in uh, golf history and great guys. You, you just, I can't find myself rooting against any of them.
1: Mm. Prediction it will Tiger win a major in the next year? You know,
0: in the next year? I will say this, uh, what Tiger has done is one of the most impressive things I have ever seen in golf, even for Tiger. To be out for two and a half years and to come back and play as competitively as he has from the get-go is truly, truly remarkable. Uh, It would not surprise me to see him win another tournament. It wouldn't surprise me to see him contend uh, in majors. I am already surprised. I would be even more surprised, astonished, and impressed if he should actually
1: win another major. Yeah, I'm I'm glad he's back. It seems like he's enjoying himself. I hope he... Uh, he seems to enjoy himself bad, now a so. lot
0: more than he yeah. than he did in the past. The 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 <clears throat> fact that he played a practice round with Phil Mickelson in mm-hmm. the Masters, I mean, that is so good for golf, yeah. and and indicates that he's coming back with a frame of mind to enjoy it in a way that I don't think he always did uh, when he was having the best round
1: of golf in all of golf golf, golf history. Yeah. We'll leave it there. Thanks, everybody, for listening. This is the Political Notebook podcast. Uh, You can subscribe to us and, and tune in every week. Thanks.